Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Empire Strikes First podcast. My name is Andres. I got Andre here with me today. How are you feeling, Andre? I'm feeling good, man. Uh, I just feel like we're in some strange times, but overall, you know, uh, I'm feeling good. I've, I think we're moving towards some interesting actions here in Wisconsin, and uh, I'm just excited to to kind of share my thoughts today. Yeah, so uh, what we wanted to, to focus on for most of today was, you know, kind of, you know, we've, we talked a little bit last time about how, like, a lot of progress has been blocked by, um, rather than, like, substantive conversation about, like, how to make people's lives better, a lot of, like, virtue signaling and identity politics. And then, like, coincidentally this week, there was the whole thing with, like, AOC wearing the tax the rich dress to um, a $30,000 a plate uh, Met Gala. Um, and there was like a whole thing where obviously like everybody on the right wing of the country was like, was, was totally against that. They think that like taxing the rich is a bad idea or whatever, but there was a really interesting like divide on like the progressive side of the country between like we're you know we're being a progressive you're like against economic elitism but there's like this divide when it comes to like cultural elitism and i think most people are generally opposed to that but the disagreement is more like is it fair to be against cultural elitism and then try to also take advantage of that system for your own means. Or, you know, if you're principled uh, about it, like, are you against cultural elitism? So then you decide to kind of take a more populist route rather than using those like cultural elitist um, means to get to your goal. And I think that's kind of like, the debate that that got sparked this week with the whole AOC tax the rich dress. But like, in my opinion, like uh, all of this in this very specific case, I don't necessarily have a problem with her going to this event. If, you know, she was more willing to um, kind of put, put these demands out there and not only say tax the rich and tweet tax the rich and like wear a dress saying tax the rich, but also hold bills in Congress hostage because the squad has that leverage because of how slim the majority in the house is to actually do what she says. Because like in reality, to the point where we are now, and hopefully I'm wrong in the future, but like the squad hasn't really contributed any meaningful permanent progress that we were looking for to the agenda that's being passed by the democratic party um that's just my take but i mean what what's your whole take on the dress thing yeah i mean so there there was two types of outrages that we got out of um aoc's dress we had obviously the the right wing outrage which they're pretty much outraged by anything uh anything AOC does. And what their tactic was, well, you know, what they always do, they try to hypocrisy burn you, but it usually falls flat. They're like, oh yeah, you say you want to tax the rich, but you're attending the 
$30,000 a plate Met, Met, Met Gala, um, you're really not that type of person. Um, but then again, I mean, she didn't pay for the ticket. She she probably doesn't have $30,000 to spend on that. Um, and she was given the dress by another woman. So that's the right wing outrage. The left the left wing outrage, which are more socialist, communist, anarchist type left, um, they were saying this is all virtue signaling that uh, AOC is just doing this um, to try to keep her leftist street cred while also kind of like getting into the club of the elite. Um, and I think I think it's a little bit more nuanced than all all of any of what they are saying. Um, I do genuinely think. AOC wants to tax the rich. So, I mean, I don't think it's virtue signaling by wearing that. Where I do agree with the left, uh, the left that they're criticizing her on is that I think she is uh, more and more as we go looking to be uh, a celebrity and want to get into the lifestyle of the celebrity lifestyle. I mean, we, we've seen that pretty much almost after she got elected. Uh, she's been extremely comfortable um, being in those groups and gatherings. Like she's been, uh, she's been on the Vogue magazine, um, cozying up to Nancy Pelosi. Um, she she rarely goes on any progressive media anymore. She only goes on the mainstream media, uh, MSNBC, CNN, um, and and establishment outlets that really won't challenge her, uh, which is very concerning to me, considering the grassroots and and the independent media really propped her up to the point that she got. Um, and, and she she seems very comfortable um, kind of upping her celebrity status. But the reason why that's controversial is because while she's doing all that, she's not really, she's not really putting her progressive foot down on things that she used to do. For example, like when Sunrise uh, organized that, that protest at Nancy Pelosi's uh, office. She was there uh, and that showed us that she was going to be on the, the front lines with us. Now, uh, what, two years later, two, three years later, there's a Met Gala and there are activists outside of that Met Gala protesting Black Lives activists, Black Lives Matter activists. And instead of standing on the front lines with them and while they were getting arrested and getting beat up, she was inside the Met Gala. Um, saying tax the rich. Now, I don't know about you, but me personally, I would rather be outside with the activists who are fighting for real actual change and not just having something on my on my clothing. Um, and I think that's where the real controversial part comes for me. Um, I don't think it's a hypocrisy burn. I think it's more about where her values continue to stand. And um, I know a lot of people have had also pointed out that it was really um it really showed a lot about how the elite view the poor um, because every, all the elite people in there, they were maskless and, you know, they keep telling us get vaccinated, keep wearing your mask so we can stop this pandemic. All the elite were maskless and all the workers or the peasants, whatever you want to, how they view them, um, they had to wear masks around the elite because lo and behold, you can't have some low wage worker uh, spreading some virus around the elite because guess what? you're not in the club with them. So that's where it it, it really, um, it was those two issues for me. There were the, the outside protests and obviously the, the mask versus the maskless because this say, it's like, it's a situation where they it's say as I do and not do as I say. Um, 
And, and that's the situation that's really frustrating. But I think there has been overblownness by a lot of people. And in my opinion, I didn't focus on it too much. I didn't I didn't like tweet about it. I didn't Facebook about it. I didn't post about it because like I have bigger issues in my life uh, and I have real like situations to tackle here at home. So it's just like if I'm focusing more of my time on AOC's dress, guess what? There's something that I'm not going to be doing that I'm not going to be focusing on. But to be nuanced, I did want to talk about that because people have lost their their damn minds about it. Like it, they've gone a little bit too far. Uh, but AOC tends to have that effect on people like people have a, at least a, a, either a serious love for her where they don't criticize her at all, where they have a serious hate for her, where they criticize her for everything. So I feel like a good place to be is kind of in a gray area where you where you criticize her when she she does something wrong and then you you give her credit for what she does right. And I think that's how it should be in every instance uh, when it comes to a politician. Well, yeah. And I think I think part of the the fear there with um, AOC, especially, I think this is a concern, but I think this has been a point of concern for uh, other members of the squad as well, is like whether or not now we're valuing like personal whether or not you're a personal celebrity and you're like personal clout over like progress. And I, th- that's one reason. And, you know, people will all use, use like the, Oh, well, she's a woman argument with the reason Hillary Clinton lost. I think part of it is also not to say that Donald Trump is not this way, but I think Hillary Clinton was very much in the race, like for Hillary Clinton, like, Hillary Clinton wanted Hillary Clinton to be president, you know, and I think that is part of my concern with AOC is like, and not to say that it's you, this is indefinitely my opinion of her, but at this point, like, it seems that she's starting to be more in this business of like trying to like take the right positions to like advance her political career rather than like advance the movement. And I think that's, you know, we've talked, we've talked about this problem a few times now. And, you know, that's kind of really where like the progressive left is stuck. And I saw um, a tweet earlier this week when, you know, unfortunately, like, again, I'm mostly with you here where it's like, this isn't even worth talking about, because again, talking about this distracts from like the real like material issues we face. But like when my Twitter feed was like absolutely full of all these tweets about everybody's individual take on this, um, you know, a lot of like the, the, you know, center left, you know, I saw a tweet that said like, if you were offered a spot at a $30,000 a plate gala, like I know you would go. And in my mind, I'm like, no, absolutely not. Like that sounds terrible. Like, and AOC is like entitled to her own take there. Like if that sounds like fun to her and, you know, she was, she did not pay to go. Um, but if, if that sounds fun to her, I guess that's her choice. But like, I can say with full confidence, like I agree with you. I would rather be like out on the street, like protesting rather than like, being the guy who like goes in and is like playing like some subversive backroom game because like that's always the argument that 
I don't know that I get from some people is like, well, you don't know. Cause like, yeah, nothing has happened yet, but you don't know what's like going on in the back room and you don't know, but let's be real. Like playing that game is not going to be success. Like that will kill our movement because Bernie and AOC and the squad and all those guys don't have enough leverage to win those backroom games where their leverage is, is like with the populace. So like, this is a game that needs to like, they need to be the people that are trying to publicize as much of this as possible rather than making this like a small affair, like, and make it super quiet. Um, Because on the policy, like people agree with them and you know what, like, a vast vast majority of the country believe that rich people need to pay more in taxes like candace owens like psychotic take of like oh the rich already pay so much in taxes like no nobody believes that nobody thinks that and republican voters want the like in polling have shown that like they want the rich to pay more as well um but it's it's just all about this thing where uh, again like this culture war stuff where we're like getting away from substantive, like solving problems. And now we're just talking about like how people feel, how people dress, you know, people's different identities. And like, that's exactly what people want us to be focusing on, which is the problem. Like we need to be focusing on economic issues that, that people all over the country are facing right now. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a bigger subtext to this whole conversation that we're having, and it's about the culture war. Um, Because what has happened is that we're fighting more over symbolism than we are fighting for actually substantive change. For example, what if like the civil, civil rights was more about like, hey, we need more black names on schools instead of we need voting rights. Like we would still be in the same situation today. And that's the issue that I have with identity politics. So, and that's just not on the left, but it's on the right as well. I mean, on the right, obviously you can see the, the situation with the culture war. They, they're, they get up in arms about wokeism, critical race theory and, and um, anti-vax and stuff like that. So like that's their culture war and defending Donald Trump. And the reason why the culture war is so dangerous is because it distracts you from the things that are actually materially hurting your life while the elites, politicians, lobbyists, everybody you can think of is running out the back door with all the money. And it's powerful. And I think we have to really have a conversation about the power of symbolism. What what symbolizes what you what you value, what you stand for and um, and, and what you believe in. Because once you institute that and you attack that, people believe that you're attacking their personality or their individual, uh, their individual selves. And that's why the culture war is so, so powerful, because they've found a way to make feel people feel individually targeted because they identify with a specific group. It's, it's powerful. Um, and, and the same thing happens on the left. So anytime, um, you know, somebody, a person of color is criticized, they immediately weaponize their gender or their race to weaponize, weaponize, weaponize their uh, 
their identity. And they just did this with AOC and unity. When they use identity to weaponize culture, um, it targets individuals. And, and this has happened uh, even on the left. And what I was saying is that um, there was a, a situation where somebody was proposing a, a, a ban on lobbying and uh, there was some left wingers uh, that was put in an article that said, well, we can't ban lobbying because this will hurt the black the black lobbyists in the industry. And it's just like. You guys really think we're that stupid, huh? You think because a black person is a lobbyist, they can't materially hurt my life because we identify with the same color or ethnic group. And that's the issue with, um, you know, this this culture war. Um, we can't really get over to have class solidarity because we are continually broken up on this culture war. So um, I can't I can't agree with you on economic policy because I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Well, that doesn't make sense because anti-vax at the end of the day doesn't really um, really materially change our, our economic lives. And that's where we have to find uh, common ground. But the culture war is so strong that if you agree or even have conversations with people from the other side that disagree with you on a cultural issue, everything goes out the window. You're now something you're not. You're a leftist, you're, you're a socialist, you're, you're a far right wing nationalist. And this is why I wanted to talk about this, because the culture war is literally destroying our country. I mean, if you think about it, if we go back far enough, they literally used the culture war to fuel the uh, civil war. I mean, remember what they said? Oh, we can't get rid of slavery because it's states' rights and they're trying to attack our values. So what they did is they weaponized, 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 I keep having a problem saying that, weaponized uh, the culture. So back to what I was saying earlier, as they said, and, and why this appealed to poor white people in the South is because they felt like their individual identities were being attacked. So they put that over all of their economic, uh, all their economic interests. Like imagine if the culture war didn't exist, guess what? The, the poor white people would have teamed up with the, with the slaves and overthrew their capitalist uh, overlords and said, you know what, that culture war BS doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, I'm still poor and it's your fault that I'm still poor. But that was not the situation. And we're it's 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 the same thing today. It's it's just wrapped in a different, it's just wrapped in a different blanket, but it's the same situation. So um and that's kind of what this this AOC thing is. It's it's more part of the culture war. Um like we can we can have the conversation about it. Um but at the end of the day it's kind of still veiled in a culture war that doesn't really make sense. Um, Cause like, yes, we should be talking about tax the rich, but how much should we identify AOC at the Met Gala with it? Like it's a bigger, bigger movement than her. Um, but now every time you say tax the rich, it's been co-opted. Now everybody's going to be thinking about AOC's dress. So now you might even see situations where like right wingers, like, well, I'm not really okay with tax the rich because AOC was wearing it on her dress. And that's how you weaponize it. Like, oh, you're you agree with AOC. And then they completely retract and like, oh, well, no, 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 I really don't do that. No, we shouldn't tax the rich. So that's that's where I think it veered off. Um, and that's how it continues to kind of put actual policy substance to the side and it continues to be uh, done in our society. I know that was a long rant. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 you're good. I see, I think that um this is interesting. And I think that when you say 
going back to your example about like we can't bl- ban lobbying because we have to protect you know black and brown lobbyists when when you bring up arguments like that i think that argument as is like racist in the same way that it's racist to bl- ban black lobbyists like i think that treating treating black and brown people differently or treating women differently or treating asian people differently just because that's their identity like i think that's racist or sexist in its own way um and it's extremely condescending and and really gross but i i think this is another point that's like definitely applicable to wisconsin right now because we're in the middle you and i were talking before we started recording about the 2022 wisconsin senate primary and um you know when i've gone on twitter there are two you know liberal activists that you pop up in a lot of wisconsin activists twitter feeds that are really really behind um lieutenant governor mandela barnes's campaign and you know that that they're entitled to their opinion and that's that's great but when you try to have any discourse with them it always comes down to or in my experience with having that discourse it comes down to one you're coming after him because he's a black man why aren't you going after tom nelson like that tom nelson's you know you're treating tom nelson better because he's white you have different standards for Mandela Barnes because um, he's a person of color, which is total bullshit. You know, if that's that's a way to shut down a substantive discussion. But like just not being able to have that discussion because one, um, because of race or two, because of the fact that he's the least wealthy of the candidates and um even though Tom Nelson and Jillian, Dr. Jillian Bettino are running on the most progressive platforms in the race, um, they're millionaires. And that seems to be a problem for people, I guess, um, who claim to be progressive. But like the way that you have to look at it is regardless of their income or their race, where they stand on policy and what they're willing to do to like fight for us. And, you know, in in this case, like, let's be objective about it. Let's not assign anybody a gender or a race. We have one candidate who has, I guess, virtue signaled in some ways that he cares about climate, he cares about healthcare, et cetera. And, but he has endorsements from candidates that are against Medicare for all, against the Green New Deal, um, against the $15 minimum wage. Um, other members of the establishment already in Washington. And then we have the other two candidates who have come out and are very policy and platform minded that are running on strong police reform. They're running on Medicare for all. They're running on the Green New Deal. Um, They're running on a $15 minimum wage. And I think that that's the way we need to look at it. And that's the dangerous thing about these culture war issues is you don't, you know, you don't want to be ostracized by like liberal circles, especially when you, when you live in a place where the circle is very much like 
neoliberal, um, you know, wealthier white people, the judgment is always to be like, well, Mandela Barnes is like a young black man from Milwaukee and he could be like a young black senator for the state of Wisconsin. But like that can't be the metric. And um, it's just so frustrating to see after all this work that we've done to make the Green New Deal and Medicare for all a litmus test for like a progressive person holding office that so many people who believe in universal health care and believe in a, a Green New Deal and believe in higher wages and believe in workers' rights totally buy into this BS of like, we need to vote for him because he's a black man. Like this, these identity politics are like the reason that we can't get any of these done. Like, I don't care if I had to vote today, I I'll be honest, like I'd probably vote for Dr. Bettino and I don't care that she's white. I don't care that she's a millionaire. What I do care about is she is the candidate that I think is most likely to go to Washington and put her own reputation on the line to fight for the things that we need. And that should be the only thing that matters. It's the same way that I, I voted for Bernie, who's a white rich man. Like I, I guarantee you, like Bernie's a per, probably the most progressive person in Congress, but I can guarantee you he's wealthier than a lot of other senators like he, but I don't hold that against him. But, and I, I think that's just the place that we've gotten. And it's so, so frustrating. All right. Well, congratulations, Anders. You are now a racist. I hope you uh, will take that label proudly. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Shit. But, um, no, that, but yeah, that's I'm, that's what I've been told. That's the that's the frustrating part. Yeah, I know. And it's and as a black man myself, I find it extremely frustrating because it, it doesn't only happen um, to, to white people, but it happens to everybody. They weaponize it against me. I mean, I remember back in 2018, uh, I worked for a white candidate instead of the black candidate who was running for governor. And I continued to hear, why aren't you work, working for the black candidate? And once you set that standard, you have to be able to live by that standard or else you're just a hypocrite. Because what's stopping you from working for a black candidate who runs for the GLP, who's a far right crazy, but he's black? You said yeah, what, what stops you from working on Candace Owens yeah. campaign? I mean, he's a young black man. She's a young black woman. I mean, by your standard, we should go vote for them if they're up against a white person by definition. But so so but they don't want to take it that way. So that's how, you know, they're very disingenuous about their actual claim that we have to support a young black person or a black person in general, because if you set that standard and don't stand by it when it's on the other side, then you're just a disingenuous person who is weaponizing identity to further your agenda. And what the real agenda is for most uh, people who weaponize it is neoliberal policies to continue the to continue the endless wars, to continue the uh, to the prison, the, to, to continue the prison industrial complex, to continue uh, wage slavery. Uh, can, to continue lock up and all the while they'll like identify weaponize it weaponize uh, uh, identity but at the same time they're not really doing anything to actually lower or or do something about why black people are continue to be oppressed in this country so they're not dealing with uh, the drug war they're not dealing with um, you know disparities in education they're not dealing with segregation in uh, in Milwaukee they're not dealing with um, 
Wisconsin being one of the worst places to be a black person in general. So like they're not dealing with the, all the underlying issues, but Hey, we got to vote for this black person because we're for black rights and we're for black people. So like, that's the issue with uh, identity politics is that it continues to put you in this endless cycle where if we just get in this, this person of color, all your, your, your life will change. Everything will be get better and, you know, put the roses and walk off in the sunset. And that's just not the reality. I mean, I mean, I think Obama did some good things, but I mean, let's use him as an example. He continued the war empire, uh, which killed hundreds of thousands of black and brown people in the Middle East. Uh, he never raised the minimum wage and somebody like, hey, well, he can raise it because uh, the Senate and Senate and, or whatever had the majority. No, for the first two years, they had a majority proof. Um, they had a, a super majority, actually. Um, they could have passed it in the first two years. They didn't pass an increase to the minimum wage. Um, they passed a right wing Republican health care plan, which is it's better than what we had, but it's still objectively bad. I mean, even the low prices for the Affordable Care Act are still pretty expensive. Um, I mean, we still have the the insane prison industrial complex. Uh, he didn't legalize marijuana. He didn't take it off the Schedule One drug. I mean, there's so much that I can talk about that, you know, as we even having a Black president, that Black people's needs weren't actually met. So that should tell people that, like, identity does not solve all your problems all is it all it does is give you a sense of semblance and in 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 some ways there is merit to having that and and like i said like for example i don't think it should be in politics but i think for example in sports it means a lot more so if you see a black person become the first quarterback of the nfl it means something because now you can strive to get into the NFL. Now you can uh, fight for that. And it doesn't mean anything to, about the symbolism there because it's a sport. Politics is not a sport. And that's that's why I say, like, identity does have merit. It just doesn't have merit in politics. For example, you brought up Bernie. Bernie represented me more than any black candidate that has run in my lifetime. And again, I mean, I'm talking about presidential candidates. Um, and, and maybe some like congressional candidates in, on my local area, but I can't speak for all areas. Cause I know there's black candidates out there running on Medicare for all and $15 minimum wage and stuff like that. But I'm talking about, you know, people I can vote for on the federal level. Um, Bernie represented my interest more than black candidates have run on the federal level. And that's just a true, true statement. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, it's very easy to fall into that trap because it's kind of like it's been done for so long. So it kind of becomes norm. I've even had somebody try to defend me like that. Like, Oh, you shouldn't be criticizing Andre because he's a black man. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like they can criticize me as long as it isn't about my identity. I mean, if they're criticizing me based on the merit of the conversation we're having, that's fine. But like, they can question my values. They can question my ideas. They can question my ideology. That's fine. Um, we can have the conversation about it. But the issue that we're having is that you're not even allowed to question Black candidates because you're instantly labeled as somebody who is racist. And yeah, I mean, you talked about your experience with Twitter, but 
I mean, that's why it's, it's very dangerous. And the right wing has a different kind of culture war. Um, it's more of a like a, you know, cult, especially like if you if you criticize Donald Trump, like they they kind of cast you out. But that's more of a, a cult of personality rather than identity situation. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's frustrating. <laughs> I don't know how, how to fix it uh, because it's so entrenched in American politics. But I think things have to be focused more on policy. Um, and once you have more candidates running on policy and not weaponizing identity, then you might see a cultural shift. But at this moment, it's still very interesting in, in uh, American politics. Yeah, well, so I want to. I want to dig into this a little more like. I, you know, Bernie talked about the multiracial working class, like he's the candidate who will get the multiracial working class to finally cooperate on all these policies that, you know, we've been unable to tackle because we've been polarized on, you know, racial and and gender fronts instead. Um, And like, you know, we've talked a lot about about this, like, class struggle in the first two episodes. But I think Wisconsin is like a really interesting place to like kind of test this or envision this because there's like, um, you know, in a lot of more urban areas like Milwaukee, there's large, large amounts of poverty, particularly in black and brown communities, um, which obviously there's a large benefit there to a lot of these economic populist things. But then like you have a really strong presence of like farmers and like uh, union labor that have been like steering themselves more and more to like the the far right in these elections. And like I see like I think we both understand we know how that happens. Like they are frustrated with the status quo candidates, like in my mind, people like Senator Tammy Baldwin or Governor Tony Evers that that the party is running in Wisconsin. And I think that they are looking for something outside of the box. And although going to the right, going to Ron Johnson is not necessarily a way to fix that. I think that's like an indicator of that internal feeling. Um, But like it's part of this issue now is like, and I think again, Wisconsin is a really interesting place to ask this question. And I think um, professor John Shelton, who I met from university of Wisconsin, green Bay would be a good person to talk to this about because he studies the history of labor, but it's like, how, how do we actively go from like, okay, acknowledging, like we have to take this, like large, large group of like impoverished people. And then this large, large group of like organized labor that's starting to buy into like right-wing culture wars and like bring them together on these issues. And I think that's difficult when you're working within a framework of a fake populist Republican party and a neoliberal democratic party. Because I think that there's not going to be a lot of Democratic voters who are willing to go and vote for a truly populist person that runs under the Republican Party, although I doubt that would be likely anyways um, (laughs) to even happen in the first place, especially with the way 
the Wisconsin Republican Party in general has kind of gone off the rails. But I think that there are a lot of those people in organized labor or the these, you know, dairy farmers in Wisconsin that make all this cheese who like won't vote for somebody who runs under the Democratic name. And I think that's a big problem that at this point, the virtue signaling has got to the point where it's where it's like, even if a Democrat does run on the right policy, and I have doubts about their ability to get something done once they actually get there, I don't see how we're going to unite this like populace that we have to tap into behind this candidate. And I don't know if that means that we need a new party. I don't know if that means that we like organizers like us need to just go into, you know, stop doing actions pointed towards the elite, but focus more on like educating and having hard discussions with people who hold views in some ways that we find abhorrent or we disagree with. Um, Because at this point, I think like the latter is the only way that this, this will happen. Like, I think they're just the, the only way to create this multiracial working class at this point is to go and, and just have discussions like one by one with organized labor, with farmers, with the poor um, white working class that have kind of bought into this like Trump Ron Johnson narrative. And that's like hard and a long process, but like at this point, and, and I guess you can give your take being that neither of us have the answer. Cause obviously we would be doing it right now if we did, but like, where, where do we go from here? Like, how do we, how do we start to break through some of this culture war stuff and actually get to like substantive discussions on how to improve people's material lives? Yeah. Um, I think you kind of hinted at it already. Um, the organization of labor. I mean, if we look back into the 1900s, when the, the socialist party started, um, they organized people about, around working class issues. Um, so that's why, you know, you've seen a lot of black people, white people and Hispanic people in the socialist party in the early days and women, because they didn't discriminate. Um, but they organized around labor, um, about around financial freedom, around not having capitalist overlords run their lives. Um, and I think we have to hit that, that note. Uh, the issue is, um, and, and this is a bit of a critique on, on labor's today, uh, labor unions today, is that uh, labor unions are a little bit too close to the Democratic Party, um, but to politics in general. I feel like when labor had their best gains is when they had an adversarial relationship to power. Um, ever since they kind of cuddled up a little bit to to uh, politicians and, and party politics, we've seen the complete destruction of, of labor and we've seen uh, more divide and conquer, conquer tactics um, implemented. And if you think about it, uh, labor um, I wasn't like the, the, the front runner of, uh, of the civil rights movement, but labor was the next step after uh, the civil rights movement was over. And that's why uh, Dr. Martin Luther King started the, the Poor People's Campaign because he knew that civil rights was only the start. If he wanted to 
really change the system that he was fighting against, he had to change the economic structure and he had to organize labor. But every, but in every instance of, um, of, of organizing people who have, who you may see have very different uh, values and interests, it's always been organized outside the Democratic Party and not in coalition with them. Uh, the Socialist Party was a third party. Uh, unions were an outside organization. Um, so I do not think you can attach that to a Democratic Party and wish for uh, useful gains or the Republican Party and wish for useful gains. I think it has to be a movement outside of the, uh, the party politics. And you have to honestly, I think you have to completely remove politics out of the, the conversations. You just have to talk about the issues and you have to talk about, you know, you know, just working class values. Because um, even though the Socialist Party was by definition a political party, I think they got their best gains when they just talked about, you know, how how the capitalist class is screwing them over and why they need to unite. Um, and it, it wasn't about our party against their party, but it was clearly about our class versus their class. And I think that's where you make your uh, true gains. And it's very clear with the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, it's never going to be about their class versus our class it's always going to be about right versus left so that's why you can never have an actual movement within the democratic party that's why you know the squad is for essentially just kind of been folded into the democratic party because you kind of just turn into what you fight against um what you were fighting against or one of the scenes is the abuse becomes the abuser right um so that's why i think if we really want to and that in no means in no way means that we should stop running uh, true left-wing candidates in the party, but we have to have an outside organizing structure outside of the party to put pressure on the party and to unite working class values. But I do not think you can do that within the Democratic Party because it is so hell-bent on right versus left, and you're never going to get any actual progress when you're doing that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And we and we talked about this this third-party situation um last time but i think that again like this needs to happen at the personal level like these discussions need to happen at the local community level because in the past when there's been a threat to this um like for example ralph nader or jill stein or even like in some ways tulsi gabbard got the same treatment where like Jill Stein was kind of smeared as, oh, she's a Russian agent because she's trying to get Donald Trump elected. And I think it's it's kind of dangerous. One, both, I think, both, I think, one, the Green Party already has like an identity as a left-wing party. And I think that that's not, I think they're perceived more positively than the Democratic Party and I think people like saying F you to both the Democrats and the Republicans, but I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the way to approach it. I don't know if like movement for a people's party is like a way to uh, approach it. I have my questions about some of their um, like antics as well. I don't know if they're in it for like, you know, making it about themselves or if they're actually like for this, but uh, it can't, I, I agree, it can't happen within this, like, this massive machine. And actually, like, coming from um, 
Minnesota, a place where um, like the Minnesota Democratic Party spends like millions of dollars on these like tiny, tiny local races. Like I um, volunteered on a city council campaign in St. Paul uh, a few years ago. And the curse kind of was there was like a young uh, Hmong woman who was running against like a transgender man. And it kind of got to a thing where the woman was running pretty much squarely on like maybe the more left-leaning side of the party platform. And the, the transgender man was having like discussions way, way outside of the bounds of what, of the questions that the party was asking. So when they gave her the nomination, they were able to spend so much money that it wasn't even, wasn't even a discussion because she had the D next to her name on the ballot and she had all this money to like an insane amount of money that comes from all these donations that the democratic party gets to spend on this. And this is like one way where it's like Wisconsin is gerrymandered at a state level. You and I have talked about like, there's not going to be really any progressive change at a state level in Wisconsin for a while. Cause there's a lot of messy red tape that needs to be undone first. Um, you know, we're not going to get legalization of marijuana. We're not going to get any sort of like, higher state minimum wage we're not going to get any of those things but i think at a local level we have a very there's like a very promising system here of these nonpartisan races where it forces you to have a substantive discussion on some sort of policy and i think that like for a lot of people you know a lot of people are not as tuned into politics as we are but it forces them to think about what benefits them and what they want because they can't just go like you, like a lot of people do in Minnesota, especially like the very white neighborhood that I'm from. They go to the polling place, they look at their ballot and they just check all the D's. And then when it comes to like elections of judges, they basically just vote for all the incumbents who are mostly running unopposed. So I, I think that's one thing about Wisconsin that's very promising is that a local level, local level, we can really dig into these conversations. And, um, you know, I, I volunteered a little bit for Michael Beardsley's campaign for city council in Oshkosh. And even though he didn't win, you were able to have discussions with voters about, you know, this is a nonpartisan race, but what does Michael believe in. He believes in increasing the wages of workers. He believes in like making Oshkosh a prettier city. He believes in making Oshkosh more sustainable, making it a cheaper place to live. Um, and that's one thing that really makes me excited about organizing on a local level, which I guess I'll be doing more and more of um, because it leads to rather than partisan bickering, it leads to real discussion. And I think another great example of this is right now in Appleton, we're working on um, a carbon neutrality plan, passing it through the city council. And sure, like Appleton's not the most progressive place. There are climate deniers on the council. The mayor is the most apolitical politician I've ever met. But um, 
rather than kind of getting into this like partisan line being drawn on climate action, we can have real discussions about how this improves the city of Appleton, which I think is like a really promising start to what needs to happen at a national level. But I think that we're kind of set up to do this at a local level in Wisconsin. And I guess that's all all that I have to say on this. I'll let you have the last word. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you're, you're making a very important, important point. And we kind of talked about why local organizing needs to be done if you actually want to start a third party. But I think, the reason why local level is also extremely important is because you're directly, you're a little bit more directly um, on the ground with local constituents. I mean, if you're running for city council, whether it's a big city or a small city, you have way less constituents than a, a congressperson um, or or than a senator. Um, so you can really hear the direct needs of people and and go oh, and go be, oh no, okay. Is it working? Can you still hear me? Okay. Yeah, you can go above and beyond uh, the partisan politics because, like you said, uh, these offices are normally not partisan offices. So you can really just get straight to the to the policy uh, to the policy substance. And I think that's why nonpartisan elections are really cool. Um, obviously, people are still going to ask you, "Are you Republican or Democrat?" Um, and at the end of the day, it's like, well, why do you care? This is a nonpartisan poli- uh, part or nonpartisan uh, election, and all we need to talk about is policy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I just agree with you there. I don't have too much to add, but I think uh, the importance of local elections is growing. And uh, just going to plug myself, I'm running for city council in Sheboygan County, or actually in Sheboygan. Uh, so if y'all want to come, uh, if y'all want to come. Uh, knock the doors for me uh my election date is sometime in april but hey you can always reach out to me on twitter (laughs) yeah that's that's awesome very excited to hear that you're running for local office everybody if you're in sheboygan go vote for andre if not um volunteer for him help him out um it would be awesome to have him in a position of influence at even at the local level it makes a big difference um yeah. i'm gonna see i'm gonna seize the means of production of sheboygan so be ready oh anyway. <laughs> very dangerous he's a dangerous guy um all right well thank you andre for for joining me once again and thank you everybody for listening we'll we'll see you all next week have a great have a great weekend everyone